continuing our journey through the book of Acts, and as we have been on this journey, we've been particularly focused on Paul's second missionary journey. We saw his first one in Acts uh, 13 and 14, and now we're here in this second journey. And uh, early on in the journey, God called Paul and those with him to go to Macedonia. He gave him a vision of a man from Macedonia who said, please come help us. And so that's why they're going to Macedonia. Uh, today, the first place in Macedonia that they're visiting is a town called Thessalonica, where the Thessalonians lived. Uh, and you might recognize that name from a couple of letters that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Uh, and actually, Paul wrote those letters while on the second missionary journey, just a little while after the events that we're going to see today. In fact, I would encourage you, go home and read First Thessalonians after uh, church today, and you're going to see that Paul refers to the, the things that we're going to be talking about from Acts 17. Um, but really, one of the things that this kind of highlights is most of the New Testament was actually written during the period of time that the book of Acts records. Um, and, uh, and just to illustrate that, I thought it might be helpful to look at a timeline. And so uh, we've got a timeline that I want to show you. Now, granted, there is more information on this timeline than we can really absorb at, at this point. But this has all of the major events that the book of Acts covers. But also there uh, on the bottom in orange, you'll see where some of the books of the New Testament, or when rather, when some of the books of the New Testament were written. The main thing I want you to see for our purposes today is that the second missionary journey is uh, happening, the, the events that we're looking at today, it's happening around AD 50, just for some perspective. And the letters of First and Second Thessalonians are written uh, not long after the events that we're going to see today that happen around AD 50. So with that in mind, and a little bit of context for where we are in history, where we are um, in, in the Bible, let's all stand together, if you're able, and let's read together Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15, our text for this morning. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. 
And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Have you ever thought to yourself, I can't believe I got out of bed for this? Hopefully you're not thinking that right now. <laughs> but let me tell you about a time that I thought that. So I was in a band in college, a worship band, and we were in Washington, D.C., uh, and we had an event on Capitol Hill. Uh, and the event was in the evening, so that meant we had the whole day beforehand to go sightseeing. So that's what I wanted to do, and I asked my buddies who wanted to go with me, and nobody wanted to go with me. But I didn't let that stop me. I went by myself sightseeing in Washington, D.C. And as I started out, it started raining. But I didn't let that stop me. I went by myself in the rain into Washington, D.C., and I looked for something I could do indoors, <laughs> and I found uh, a, a museum. I wanted to go to the National Air and Space Museum, so I make my way through the rain to the National Air and Space Museum, and it was closed. Like, all right, let's strike, one, strike level three at this point. Let's try to find something else. Finally, I ended up at the National Museum of American History, and it was open Praise the Lord, I was able to go in, dry off, and uh, see some really cool things. If you've never been, there's some, some amazing uh, pieces of American history there. Well, so, you know, that day, eh, despite everything that had happened to me, I was still pretty upbeat. Uh, it didn't bother me that none of my friends wanted to go with me and I had to go alone. It didn't bother me that it was raining it didn't bother me that the first place I tried to go was closed and I had to go find another place. But then in the museum, I saw something that finally did bother me. Turn a corner, and there it was on a pedestal, enclosed in a glass case with a light shining down on it. And I was infuriated. It was Thomas Jefferson's Bible. And if you don't know, Thomas Jefferson did not believe that many parts of the Bible were true. 
he believed this so much, he actually took his personal Bible and he cut out the sections of the Bible that he did not agree with. You can go to the Smithsonian and see it for yourself. It's a yellowed, 250-year-old, King James leather-bound Bible with squares cut out of the pages. I stood there looking at it. Blood boiled. And I thought, I can't believe I got out of bed with this. The truth is, though, many people have the same attitude about the Bible that Thomas Jefferson did. Now, most don't go so far as to actually cut squares out of their Bible, but they might as well. They live as if certain sections of Scripture were not even in their Bible to begin with. They might have a whole Bible on their shelf, but they live like squares are cut out. They live like salvation is by grace and apart from works has been cut out of their Bible. They live as if Jesus is Lord has been cut out of their Bible. They live as if love your neighbor has been cut out of their Bible. Well, what Acts 17 teaches us is that the whole Bible is worth opening up. And we ourselves should be open to the whole Bible. Thomas Jefferson's problem is that he was closed off to the whole Bible. When when Thomas Jefferson and the Bible came together, they were at odds with each other. And Thomas Jefferson's solution to that was to leave his mind unchanged and to cut out the parts of the Bible that disagreed with him. What God wants to do is leave the Bible unchanged. And cut out the parts of our thinking that disagree with him. What we'll see in Acts 17 is that God wants to open the Bible to us. And he wants to open our minds to the Bible. So that his unchanging word can change our mind. We're going to see this truth in three sections of Acts 17. First, we're going to see scriptures opened to the gospel in verses 1 through 4. Second, we'll see minds closed to the scriptures in verses 5 through 10. And then lastly, we'll see minds opened to the scriptures in verses 10 through 15. First of all, scriptures opened to the gospel. Well, last week we saw Paul and all of his uh, companions in Philippi, one of the cities of Macedonia. 
they left there and they went on to another part of Macedonia. And you can see that on this map. Um, we're going to see their, uh, their whole missionary journey. It started in the east in Antioch. They've made their way west. And up there in the northwest corner is the region of Macedonia. And we'll zoom in a little bit so you can see this better. Uh, they made their way to Philippi last week, and then the text in verse 1 tells us they went through Amphipolis, through Apollonia, there to Thessalonica. And, uh, of course, in the rest of the passage, we'll see them go to Berea, uh, but then Paul has to make his way ultimately all the way to Athens by the end of the passage. And as they come into Thessalonica, unlike what happened in Philippi, in Thessalonica, there was actually a synagogue. You remember, might remember last week, there was just a, a small group of Jewish women who were gathering together. There wasn't a full-blown synagogue in Philippi. But we find out that there's a synagogue in Thessalonica. Look at verse 2. And Paul went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So this was his custom. Paul normally went to the synagogue first when he came to a new place. A synagogue was a local assembly of Jews who would gather together to pray together, to open up the scriptures together. And so it was a natural place for Paul to preach Jesus because he was able to share common ground with these Jews uh, in the common ground of the Old Testament scriptures. And I want you to look at that phrase in verse 2. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Paul did not make up ideas and then shoehorn them in to the Bible. Paul made solid, credible, legitimate arguments to demonstrate the intended meaning of the scriptures. Luke gives us a further description in verse 3. He was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Uh, he explained, he proved. Uh, Paul unlocked the true meaning of the scriptures for them. Paul pointed out what God put in to the scriptures. Well, what was it that he wanted to open up to them? What was it that he wanted to unlock for them and point out to them? Well, the first thing that they needed to see is that according to the scriptures, it was necessary that the Messiah suffer and rise. The Jews believed a lot of things about the Messiah, but they did not understand that the Messiah would suffer and be resurrected. So before Paul could talk about Jesus, first he had to establish that the scriptures taught that the Christ, the Messiah, had to die and rise again. And notice that phrase, it was necessary. So Paul was not just making the case that hypothetically, maybe it kind of fits without being contradicted by the Old Testament scriptures. No, he said, according to the scriptures, it had to happen. It couldn't have happened any other way. It was God's will 
expressed in Scripture that the Messiah, the Christ, would suffer and rise again. This is what Jesus taught after his resurrection in Luke 24. You can go see that for yourself. In uh, Acts 2 at Pentecost, Peter taught this. He opened up Psalm 16 and demonstrated that it was necessary for the Christ to die and rise again. Philip taught the Ethiopian eunuch this. He opened up Isaiah 53 and showed that the Christ must be the suffering servant. And now Paul is saying the same thing that Jesus and all of his apostles are teaching. It is necessary, necessary that the Messiah would die and rise again. Well, once Paul demonstrated from Scripture that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise again, then he was able to get to his main point. And his main point is that Jesus is this Christ. So really, he has a simple argument. According to the scriptures, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die. That's point one. Point two, Jesus died and rose again. Okay, so point one, it was necessary for the Christ to die and rise again. Point two, Jesus died and rose again. Therefore, Jesus is the Christ. And what was the result of him preaching this from the scriptures? Look at verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Uh, so some of the Jews were convinced. Not a lot, but some. And then a great many of uh, the Greeks who worshipped the God of Israel also believed, and not a few a.k.a. a lot of the leading women, also. So most of the people who responded to the gospel in Thessalonica were from a Gentile background, and that'll be important as the story goes on. But for now, here's what we need to see. When Paul opened up the scriptures and he revealed in them the gospel, people believed and people we're saved. And God wants you to believe the gospel too. The Bible only has one point. And getting that point or missing that point is a matter of life and death. If you dig deep into the scriptures, if you use solid, legitimate, credible methods of study like Paul did, if you open up the Bible and let it speak for itself, if you unlock the Bible to see what is really there, you will find that all roads point to Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected. You will find that it wasn't just possible that Jesus Christ may have died and risen. You will find that it was necessary for Christ to die and rise again. The entire Bible points to Jesus crucified and risen. Uh, in the Old Testament, as we read Genesis, we long for the serpent-crushing offspring of the woman who will bless all the nations of the world. 
As we read Leviticus, it makes us long for a law keeper. As we read Joshua, it makes us long for the one who would bring us in to the true promised land. As we read Judges and Kings and Chronicles, they make us long for a true leader, a righteous king. As we read Ezra and Nehemiah, it makes us long for the one who will end our exile in this fallen world and bring us into the true promised land. As we read the Psalms, it makes us long for the anointed king who will bring us to Zion. As we read the prophets, they make us long for the suffering servant and Emmanuel and the new covenant and the ruler who would come from Bethlehem. And the one who would spend three days in the belly of God's judgment and come out alive. And then when you come to the Gospels, he's here. The Christ has come. And four times we're told a story. And four times that story moves rapidly to a cross. Where all of a sudden the story slows way down and invites us to gaze At the Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And the Gospels reveal him not only suffering and dying, but rising victorious, appearing physically visible, audible, touchable, and then ascending to the Father's right hand. And then the whole rest of the New Testament points back to this crucified and risen Christ. We've seen in the book of Acts how it tells the story of the spread of the message of the crucified and risen Christ. Uh, In the epistles, we find out how the crucified and risen Christ justifies us by faith. How the crucified and risen Christ builds a local church. How the crucified and risen Christ frees us from the law. How the crucified and risen Christ reigns over all things, including the church. How the crucified and risen Christ reconciles broken relationships. How a pastor is to lead a local church that belongs to a crucified and risen Christ. How to live as exiles in this world under the authority of a crucified and risen king. And then we come to Revelation and we find out how to have hope even in the midst of suffering, as we wait for the crucified and risen king who is also the soon coming king who will return to execute justice and make all things new and be with us forever and reign eternally. Every page of the Bible is shouting, it is necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise and every page of the Bible is shouting at you trying to persuade you to believe in this crucified and risen king. Jesus died and rose again to save you from sin and death. Your sins can be forgiven. You can have eternal life if you give your life to this crucified and risen Christ, Jesus. Give your life to the one that the whole Bible is about. Give your life to the one who suffered and rose for you. But be warned. 
giving your life to a suffering Christ comes at a cost. That's what we see next as Luke shows us not only scriptures opened to the gospel, but second, minds closed to the scriptures and verses 5 through 10. So when Paul opened the scriptures in Thessalonica, there was a positive response from some of the Jews, but there was also a negative response by many. Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. The Jews were jealous. A a few of the Jews had believed, but the Jewish leaders and those who were with them did not. They became jealous. Uh, They didn't like that they were losing their influence over these Jews who had been persuaded to follow Jesus. So they went to the marketplace and they rounded up some lowlifes, some troublemakers, and they formed a mob to stir up the whole city. They go to the house of Jason, who was apparently the host of Paul and Silas in Thessalonica, but they weren't there. So they dragged Jason and some of the other Christians out to the city leaders. And then the accusations start flying in verse 6. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So the Jews accuse Paul and Silas, and by association, Jason and the others. uh, They're troublemakers. They're turning Philippi upside down. They're turning other places. They're turning the whole world upside down. And now they're coming to our town to try to do the same thing they've done there. The irony. They're accusing Paul and Silas of being troublemakers who are turning their city upside down when they literally just went to the marketplace to get troublemakers to go turn the city upside down and attack Paul and Silas. The other thing they say about Paul and Silas is that they're going against Caesar. They're saying that there's another king, Jesus. And now there's some truth in that. The message of the gospel is that Jesus is king above all kings but that king jesus also tells us to obey human government to render unto caesar that which is caesar so in the sense that they meant it it was a false accusation but it was an accusation that was taken very seriously in the roman empire and you can see that in verse 8 and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Now, surely they would have liked to have punished Paul and Silas, but they weren't there. All they could do was penalize Jason. And so verse 9, when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So they fined Jason as a way to guarantee that they would make sure that there was going to be no more trouble in their town from Paul and Silas. And What that led to is what we see in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. 
Here's what we need to see. When God opens up the word to a person, and that person believes and seeks to submit to King Jesus, who's at the center of that open word, that will make the world jealous. You belong to us. You're supposed to be one of us. Why can't you just go the way of the world? When the world starts to lose their influence on us, it will feel as if the whole world has been turned upside down. And so here's what we need to come to terms with. If we submit to the word, we must not expect to be at peace with those who are closed off to the word. Those who are closed off to the word do not understand us. They think we are closed-minded. But it is they whose minds are closed off to the truth of God's word. They see us as troublemakers. But it is they who have turned the world upside down from how God intended it to be. Consider the baker who just wants to glorify God in his business and is unwilling, therefore, to make a cake for a same-sex wedding. People will seek him out, attack him, try to financially persecute him, and then accuse him of being a troublemaker, stirring up problems. They'll accuse him of being close-minded and intolerant. Why can't you just go the way of the world? Why? I mean, don't you want to be on the right side of history? But it's those who have redefined marriage and sexuality who have turned the world upside down from what God's will really is. Or consider the college graduate who gives up a lucrative career opportunity to go on to the mission field. Well, if grandma and grandpa have worldly minds, they're going to look at their grandson and think he's got it all backwards. And they don't realize that their grandson has actually chosen the good portion. Consider the Christian dad who won't let his kids play sports on Sunday so that their family can obey God's command to gather with the church every week. He will be criticized. You're depriving your child of an opportunity, doing a disservice to his teammates. But it is those who live as if sports are God who have turned the world upside down and have a backwards perspective on what is important. If we are faithful to the word, the whole word, we cannot expect to be affirmed by those who are closed off to it. We can't have our cake and eat it too. It's either Jesus or the world. We can't serve two masters. If we let our values be shaped by God, we will look upside down to the world. 
but it is they who have it backwards. Don't expect to follow King Jesus and be applauded by people who are unwilling to bow the knee to him. But even in the face of that opposition and difficulty, we can have confidence knowing that we are actually on the right side of history. We're on the right side of eternity. And we can know this if Jesus has opened our minds to see the scriptures. And that's what we see lastly in this passage. Not only scriptures opened to the gospel and minds closed to the scriptures, but finally, minds opened to the scriptures. Paul and Silas left Thessalonica, but they stayed in Macedonia. They went to the next town over, the town of Berea. First stop, of course, the synagogue. But their experience at the synagogue in Berea was very different from their experience at the synagogue in Thessalonica. Look at verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Uh, so he says these Jews were more noble. So what does that mean? Well, so literally, the idea of being noble has to do with being like well-bred, uh, being born into a, a high social status. Uh, but that's not what Luke has in mind here at all. It has nothing to do with their, their birth or their social status. It has to do with their attitude. Uh, some translations will put it, they were more noble-minded. And the idea is that they were open-minded. They were open to a new idea. Well, so what does it mean that they were open-minded? Well, first, we have to recognize open-mindedness by itself is not good. Open-mindedness by itself means being open to the idea that anything could be true, even ideas that contradict Scripture. So open-mindedness by itself is not good, but it was good here that the Jews in Berea were open-minded. Why? Why was it good? Don't miss this. It was good that they were open-minded only because their open-mindedness was under the authority of Scripture. They were open-minded under the authority of Scripture. They were so committed to the truthfulness and authority of Scripture, they were open to letting Scripture change their minds about the conclusions that they had previously come to from their initial readings of Scripture. Now, in contrast, what we saw in Thessalonica is that most Thessalonian Jews were closed-minded. They were closed off to the truth of the Word. Now, they would have said that they believed in the authority of scripture, but they were unwilling to change their minds. They had come to the conclusion in their reading of scripture that the Bible does not teach that the Christ would suffer and rise. 
they had made up their minds and they were not willing to let even the Bible change their minds about that conclusion that they had come to. Ultimately, those Thessalonian Jews, what we see is they were not committed to Scripture. They were committed to their interpretation of Scripture. On the other hand, the Berean Jews were open-minded. They received the word with all eagerness. They were not closed off. They were open to whatever God had actually said. They just wanted to hear from God. And so they examined the scriptures to see if these things were so. The Berean Jews did not assume that they had interpreted scripture perfectly before. They were open to consider Paul and Silas's teaching that the, it was necessary, according to scripture, that the Christ would suffer and rise again. They were at least willing to consider that maybe the scriptures actually do teach that the Christ must suffer and rise again. Uh, they were open to asking questions like, did I read that wrong before? Did I miss a passage before? And notice their commitment to the authority of Scripture, their commitment to hearing and receiving the word. Remember, they, they did not have individual copies of Scripture at this point. It would be 1,500 years before individuals were getting copies of Scripture to have at home. So they were leaving their home, coming to the synagogue daily, every single day, gathering together, getting together with these other people, examining the Scriptures, asking, does it really say that? Are these things really so? They got together daily to excavate precious truths out of Scripture there at the synagogue. And one of the things that we need to see here about this group of people gathering together, examining the Scriptures, receiving them with eagerness, seeing are these things true, we got to recognize the Bible holds up to strict scrutiny. The Bible doesn't need to be defended. The Bible doesn't need to be apologized for. You don't have to go easy on the Bible. It can take it. The Bible holds up to strict scrutiny. Remember, in Thessalonica, Paul made thorough, solid, legitimate, airtight arguments from Scripture. I mean, there's some people who will suggest an idea about Scripture, and like, if you have the idea and you kind of zoom out and squint, and you're like, eh, Scripture might say that. That's not what the Bereans are doing. They're zooming in with a microscope, examining, dissecting every little word and phrase. That's how committed they were to what does the Bible actually say. And what did their thorough examination tell them? Paul was right. The scripture really does, if you let it speak for itself, the scripture really does teach it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise. And that's why we see the result that we find in verse 12. Many of them, therefore, believed. 
with not a few, again, a lot, of Greek women of high standing as well as men. So in Thessalonica, some of the Jews believed, but in Berea, many of the Jews believed. And like in Thessalonica, in Berea, there were Gentiles who believed as well. But unlike what happened in Thessalonica, in Berea, none of the Jews responded negatively to the gospel. There's still a negative response, though. Look at verse 13 again. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So you might remember that this is what happened on the first missionary journey too. Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra, and the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came to town just to harass them. That's what happens here. The Thessalonian Jews came to Berea to stir up trouble again. So again, the local believers had to send Paul off. Look at at verses 14 and 15 just once more. The brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. So Paul was taken out of Macedonia to Athens, uh, but Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. Paul told those who took him to Athens, tell Silas and Timothy to come ASAP, and uh, we'll see uh, Silas and Timothy catch up with Paul in Corinth in chapter 18. But before we leave this section, um, I want to consider what we can learn from the Bereans. And I would boil down what we can learn from the Bereans in three points. First of all, the scriptures are authoritative, so receive them with eagerness. The scriptures are authoritative, so receive them with eagerness. Submitting ourselves to the authority of scripture means always being teachable. The moment we are no longer willing to let the Bible change our minds, the Bible is no longer the authority. We are. The question is, who is under whose authority? Am I under the Bible's authority, or is the Bible under my authority? The issue really does come down to a question of authority. To be close-minded like the Thessalonians is to make yourself the authority. I made up my mind. You can't tell me any differently. I am unwilling to change my mind. But to be open-minded like the Bereans is to let God's word be the authority. I'm eager to receive whatever God has said, even if it means admitting I was wrong before. I'm willing to change my mind if it means conforming my mind more to what God's will is in his authoritative scriptures. The scriptures are authoritative. So, what did I say? Receive them with eagerness. You can feel that in a number of ways. Submit to them, trust in them, believe them, conform to them. Receive them with eagerness. We'll, we'll take language from Acts 17. Second, the scriptures are clear, so examine them. 
the scriptures are clear, so examine them. One of the most amazing things about the scriptures is that they are clear. Now, to be fair, there's parts that are more clear on their face than others. But here's what I mean. You don't have to have a seminary degree to read the Bible. You don't have to know Hebrew or Greek or Latin to understand the Bible. You don't have to rely on a priest or a prophet or a rabbi or a pastor for you to hear from God. You don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to take anyone else's word for it. You can hear God's word for yourself on the pages of Scripture. If you take the Bible, like the Bereans, open them up, receive them with all eagerness, examine them daily to see what does it really say, you can arrive at the same conclusion as everyone else who submits to the authority of Scripture. You don't have to take anyone else's word for it. You can read the Bible for yourself. You can hear from God for yourself. The scriptures are clear, so examine them. And finally, the scriptures are for God's people, so don't go at it alone. The scriptures are for God's people, so don't go at it alone. Now, again, remember, the Bereans didn't have a Bible at home on the shelf that they could just kind of individually, casually sit at home like, what was that he was saying? Just kind of take it off the shelf and casually thumb through it like, yeah, that checks out and put it back on. Like, no, they, they gathered together. They got together at the synagogue and opened up the scrolls at the synagogue. They examined the scriptures together. God wants us to understand his word and God wants us to submit to his word. And he has given us many resources to help us understand the word and help us submit to his word. And one of the most important resources God has given us to help us know the word and submit to the word is the local church. The community of the people of God. The Bible is meant to be read by God's people together. Together, we help one another understand God's word. Together, we help one another submit to God's word. So may we receive the word with eagerness and examine the scriptures carefully. And may we do so together with minds opened to the truth of scripture and under the authority of scripture. I hope what you've seen as we've looked at Acts 17 is that the scriptures are precious. The scriptures reveal God to us. The scriptures expose our sin. The scriptures, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, are able to make us wise unto salvation. They're breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction that the man of God may be complete and lacking in nothing. 
equipped for every good work. A psalmist writes in Psalm 19 that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward. The scriptures are precious. Cherishing them and submitting to them will not make us popular with a world closed off to the truth of scripture. But to those of us who by the grace of God have had our minds open to the truthfulness and authority of Scripture, these words are precious. So please, don't live like you have squares cut out of your Bible. And tomorrow morning when you wake up, Just know, the Bible is worth getting out of bed for. It is precious. Let's pray to the Lord.